If you have your Bible, and I hope and I pray that you do, uh, either get it out or turn it on if it's on your phone, and open and meet me in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. As we continue our study through this letter, uh, we are going to take a look at now more of the application, more of the way that Jesus as our high priest applies to our lives even today. So if you're maybe unfamiliar with Center Church Brenham, or maybe it's just been a while since we've set it up here from the stage, I want to remind you of Center Church Brenham's mission statement. Our mission statement at Center Church Brenham is that we exist to invite people to Jesus and call believers to live out the gospel. So if you want to think of this shortly, it's invite in and live out. We want to invite people to Jesus in words and deeds with our lives As we go out and share, as we send you out each week, but also as people come, we want to equip you to do the work of ministry. We want to equip you to live the life that God has called you to live. And so some people might think, well, where do you get a statement like that? Why why is that our mission statement here at Center Church, Brenham? Mission statements are all over the place, but why specifically do we have that one here? And I want to make an argument this morning that we have actually developed this mission statement connected to what we see here in Hebrews chapter 10. So I want to show you that we're just not making this stuff up, that me and Pastor Kyle, we're not just sitting around and like, hey, let's bring up some cool mission statements, you know, like what can we get really people excited about? Like we actually have put thought into this based off of our, our understanding of what God teaches us in scripture. So we want to make that connection. I want to make that connection for you this morning. But before I do, let me begin with uh, a, a, re- a recollection of how we are been created by God. All right. So if you take notes, this is note number one. Number one, we are created for community. Note number one, we are created for community. Every single person in this room, you were created to be in relationships with other people. Now, you could be, say, like, well, Jeremy, I am the most introverted person in all the world. And that's great. I'm glad God designed you that way. I'm not necessarily that way, but that's okay if you are. However, I want you to understand that from the beginning, God created us to still be in community. That God created us to have relationships. We see this in the very beginning. When God begins to create the world, after every day, every day of creation, he looks at what he has created. And in that, the Bible records that he saw that it was good. Now, this is really important because God doesn't create anything bad. It's impossible for God to create something bad. In fact... This is why God creates everything excellently. And because God is a God of excellence, one of the things that we desire to do here at Center Church Brenham is we desire to be excellent in everything we do. Not as a means to be a platform or a stage builder. It's a means to to mimic God in that since he creates excellently, we want to do everything here excellence, pointing people beyond ourselves to the one who is the most excellent. And so God creates us and or he begins to create. He looks and says, everything I create is good. But there is one point in creation where God looks and he's like, "Mm, this is not good. And the one point in creation when he looks and says it is not good verbatim is when he makes Adam. After he makes Adam, he looks at Adam and Adam's the first human being on the planet. And he's like, it's not good. What is it not good? It's not good that man should be alone. You ever seen a bachelor house? We used to have a student. I used to have a student in my student ministry and he had like this really long hair. And I'm like. That's why it's not good for us to be alone. 
So God, in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom, he's like, I'm going to create a helper for this man. And he creates Eve out of man. He calls a deep sleep to go over Adam and he takes a rib and he creates Eve and he brings the woman to the man. And in scripture, we get the very first words of man. He was like, yes. Actually, he said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Now, as we rightly do, we rightly use this to establish the understanding of the institution of marriage. Marriage is a one man, one woman relationship. That's the way that God has intended and designed it to be. That wasn't me. That was you. That's okay. That's exactly my tweet whistle too. We understand that God created us as a man. or He created the first institution of man between Adam and Eve. But one of the things that he tells the man and the woman to do is to what? To be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to fill the earth with worshipers. To fill the earth with more people. And as the earth becomes filled with more people, then society gets built. This is why we as, as Christians, we, we believe in the institution of marriage. We believe that, that marriage is the building block of all of society. Because building block of all society in that good marriages create good families, which in turn creates a decent society. But nonetheless, when we fill the earth with people, the idea is that there's no such thing as being alone. We're going to have people that we're going to be in relationships with. And before sin entered the world, our relationships were good. Our relationships were biblical and healthy. But as many of you know, relationships are not that way today, are they? In fact, relationships can be a bit of a struggle. And the reason is that sin entered the world, sin contaminated and corrupted our ability to be in relationship with one another. This is why you struggle with your spouse. This is why you struggle with your children. This is why you struggle with your coworkers and your friends and sometimes even struggle with people in the church because sin has distorted our ability to relate well to each other. But I have a good news for you this morning. Jesus has transformed community and we're going to see that here in just a few moments. But I want you to understand that the church is a representation, is a visible representation of the gospel. And so sometimes what happens is we get in trouble with our own sin in the church. Everybody ever heard of the church multiplication rule of dividing? Multiplication through division? I was reading, uh, as I was studying this week, uh, the Dallas Morning News a couple of years, or many years ago actually, uh, found out that this church in Dallas was splitting and the church, the two sides of the church were actually going to court with one another to determine who gets the building. Like one side thought they were right, so they should get the building. The other side thought they were right, so they should get the building. And so the Dallas Morning News gets a report of this. And so they go in to investigate. And in their report, in their article, this is why the church divided. The church did not divide over a theological issue. The church divided over a piece of ham. Now, this is not like Levitical law ham. Like some people are like, well, we should never eat ham because it says in Levitical law, you're not supposed to eat anything unclean. And the rest of them are like, well, actually, when Jesus brings that, you know, he floats that little uh, that tablecloth down to Peter and he says, take and eat for what I have declared clean. So we're going to eat up that bacon. No, 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 that wasn't the debate. The debate came at a church potluck event. Does anybody know what a potluck is? It's where everybody brings food. 
I just, I just, okay, that's what it is. Everybody brings food and we all share it. And what ended up happening is that an older gentleman was actually served a smaller piece of ham than the child sitting next to him. And that's what caused the division. Unfortunately, churches, Center Church Brenham, when we don't strive for unity under the gospel, we will hinder our ability to reach people with the gospel. In other words, we will have a difficult time inviting people to Jesus. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you that we are actually called into a new kind of community. Jesus has established a new community for us as his people. We are a called out people. So that's that's number two. If you're taking notes, number two is we are a called out people. As we've seen throughout this text in Hebrews, we've seen Jesus as our high priest. Last week, we saw that the incarnation and the, the cross leads to verse 10. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus has also shown us in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verses 15 through 18 continue to establish our understanding of the gospel. The gospel is very simply, Jesus took your place. Jesus lived the life that we were unable to live. He died the death we deserved to die for our sin. And he rose again to prove that he has defeated our sin. And for everyone who puts their faith in him, Jesus says, the penalty of sin has been removed. Look at me me in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, Jesus saves you. It's what we call in theological language, soteriology. It's salvation. This is Jesus' work Put on us Jesus's righteousness given to us by putting our trust and faith in him. But look at verse 19. What happens is not only are we saved, not only is our relationship with God established and reconciled. And now we begin to live for him. But look what it does for us. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers. And some of your texts might say sisters. And I think that's a good translation. Therefore, brothers and sisters, wait a minute. How does the author of Hebrews go from the offering and the high priestly office of Jesus to saying, therefore, brothers and sisters? Perhaps we could make the case, which I think is wrong, that, well, maybe he just had a really large family. And this church here was his family, and so he's just going home and he's telling all church. But I, I think that actually goes against what the author of Hebrews is actually teaching. What he is establishing in verse 19, based on off of what he has just said about our faith in Jesus, prior to that, in the rest, in the beginning of verse 10, from 10-1 all the way to 18, is this. The gospel makes you a new community. In other words, the gospel gives you a family. We are a called out people. Now, what happens here, uh, Augustine wrote in his uh, book on the city of God, 
which I would commend it to you if you really want some good heavy reading in your life, because I know all of you have a lot of spare time, like me. But the city of God, uh, he talks about, Augustine talks about that we live in the city of man, in our sinfulness, this idea that we, we live in our sinfulness, we live in a way that embraces the ideologies, the values of humanity. But when through Jesus, Jesus removes us from the city of man and he puts us into the city of God. And the city of God is a new relationship with God, but it is a relationship in which we submit our entire lives to the lordship of Christ. In other words, if you want me to give it to you in a visual representation, God's word becomes our standard and we become conformed to God's standard, not the other way around. And what this does then is this removes us into a called out community, into a community of believers, a a church family. Now, here's the deal. Some people hear that and it wrongly in our culture of American Christianity, we just think, okay, well, let's just uh, let's just only hang out with our Christian people. Let's just only if we're called out to be a part of the city of God, let's not even have anything to do with the city of man. And if that's if that's our thinking, then we're not thinking like Jesus. Jesus says, I have called you out of the world to do what? To send you right back in. And not to send you in to embrace the city of man, but to send you in with the good news of the gospel to get more people from the city of man to the city of God. And one of the ways that he does this is through the church. Through us as a family, brothers and sisters, he says. And it's not a brothers and sisters based off of his, not a brothers and sisters based off of a biological brothers and sisters. It's a brothers and sisters built off of the blood of Jesus that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So think about that for a moment. Believers in this room, look around. Here's your brothers and sisters. Here's your family. One of the things that we have done wrong, Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, one of the things that we have done wrong in the American church is that we have separated what we call soteriology, salvation, with ecclesiology, which is the understanding of the church. In fact, the two are joined together. When God saves you out of your sin, he saves you into a community. And one of the reasons that God saves you into this new community is in order to help you live out what he's already said in verse 14. For by a single offering, Jesus, he has perfected us for all time. Those are being sanctified. The idea here is that Christian, you need the church because the church is designed to make you more like Jesus. We are called into a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I I know what some people will say to me. Some people will say, well, wait a minute, Jeremy, what my family's my family's here with me. You know, I look over there, I can see my mom, I can see my dad, I see grandmas, grandpas, nephews, nieces, like all, all my family's here with us at Center Church. And I want you to know something, you are blessed for that. You are blessed if your family's here. If you look out there and you see your nieces and your nephews and uncles and aunties and grandmas and grandpas and moms and dad, you are blessed to be a part of a church family where your biological family is. However, sometimes the church family will take precedence over the biological family. So what do you mean? Recently, I sent a sermon by Dr. David Allen Black to some of our, uh, some of our men in the, our, our men's group me messaging system. And in this, in this uh, sermon, which is one of my favorite sermons that Dr. David Allen Black has ever preached, in this sermon, he talks about this call to missions 
And do you know what the number one hindrance for young people to go to the nations with the good news is? Grandparents. Grandparents have a hard time letting go of their children and their grandchildren. They have a hard time sending their children and their grandchildren to the nation. Listen, I'm looking forward to the day when I get to be a granddad. Because they get to come in. I'm going to feed them all kinds of sugar. I'm going to play basketball with them until my hip gives out. And then I'm going to send them home, baby. Right? Grandparents? I look forward to that day. But the problem is that sometimes, sometimes our earthly families can get in the way of what God has called us to do. And that's when the church family comes to the scene. That's when the church family comes and helps not only the fam- your biological family, but also you to say, this, if God is calling you to the mission field, if God is calling you to this task, we're here to support you through it, and we're here to help you in all of your relationships go do what God has called you to do. Because we're a family. But listen, most people don't have that kind of lifestyle. There's some people in this room, there's some people in our churches right now that, that maybe they're, they're a single mom or a single dad. Or maybe they have, they're married to an unbelieving spouse and they're trying to live out 1 Corinthians 7 the way that Paul has told them to live out the gospel. Or maybe there's people here that they're, they're a child or a student who's come to faith in Jesus, but they're, none of their family knows Jesus. And so, and so where do they turn? Who do they look to to be their spiritual mommies and daddies and brothers and sisters? Brothers and sisters, that is the church. That is our role. We look at each other as family. And so when people in our context, like widows or widowers, when people in our context, they don't have a biological family of believers, guess what? That's where the church steps in. That's what we do. We come in as their gospel family to help them through life. I think of this oftentimes when I, when I go and visit Japan. In Japan, uh, it's a shame culture. It's a heavy shame culture there. And in Japan, it's a, it's a family dynamic culture. So in, in Japan, when I go, there's a proverb that says this. The nail that stands out is bound to be hammered in. The idea here in Japanese culture is that you cannot be an individual. You're supposed to be in a culture of harmony, so you're not supposed to stand out. If you stand out, then it's culture's job to put you back in line. Well, what does Jesus tell us to do? Jesus calls us out. We live differently because of the gospel. And for some of the Japanese people, when they give their lives to Jesus, that might mean that they might shame and lose their family. But do you know what the good news is? They get another one. I would even argue they might get a bigger one. This happens all the time, even in other locations around the world, where where locations that are hostile to Christianity, where families are required to even go and kill that person, their, their child or their grandchild, because they've... They left a certain false religion and began to cling to the gospel. So where do they go? They come to their brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, we have got to get to an understanding that the gospel brings us into a new and called out community. We need to be in to look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When I used to go to traditional Baptist churches, I was at a traditional Baptist church for four and a half years. I used to get weirded out when people would be like, Brother Jeremy, Brother Bale. And I'm like, why do you keep calling me that? I'm not your brother. I didn't understand what they were trying to do. What they were trying to insinuate as calling us Brother Bell or Sister Katie. What they were trying to do is they're like, you're our family. And you're not our family because we're biologically related. You're my family because we are bought with the same blood of Jesus. And I like that. Don't you? Changes the, the way that we live through life. So number, so number three. 
Not only are we called to a new community, number three, we are called to live differently. This is our second part of our mission statement, called to live out the gospel. Look what he says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtains, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, the family of God, he says this now, this is what we do with that information as believers, and we do it together. Verse 22, let us draw near. You see, as a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are given total access to God through Jesus. He tears the curtain down for you so that you could come to him with anything. And so therefore, he says, we live differently in that we draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Why? Because our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. In other words, when we put our faith in Jesus, our conscience is at rest because he removes the guilt of sin from us. You can go back and listen to the sermons like four weeks ago on the human conscience. I don't have time to rehash that here. Just understand that Jesus removes the guilt because of his work. And so therefore we can draw near to God knowing that our consciences have been cleared because of the blood of Jesus. And then look what he says next. And our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, we begin to live out and obey God's commands. I think the, uh, the context here lends itself to the understanding of baptism. Baptism is an outward symbol of an inward change. And it's a symbol that lets everybody know I am going to be obedient to Jesus. In fact, I would argue with new believers all the time that baptism is the most simple form of obedience. All you got to do is get in the water and get dunked. Now, of course, there's a lot of theology that we talk about to get them to understand what they're doing. But that's the first easy step of baptism, of obedience to Jesus. We are beginning to say, I'm going to obey you, Lord, in anything that you tell me to do. And I want to start now by showing this through my baptism. So the idea here is that Jesus brings us into a new community of faith and calls us to live differently, to draw near to God by living a life for God. Verse 23, not only that, look what it also does. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. The other thing is that we are to persevere in the faith. Together, we persevere in the faith. Together, we are to encourage and disciple each other. One of our values here at Center Church is we value the idea of coaching biblical theological discipleship. In other words, we want to conform your mind into what Scripture says. And that's a community effort. That's why he says, let us do this. I'm reading a book on Augustine as mentor right now. And and Augustine, his mentor, he talks about uh, the guy that wrote the book, Smither. He talks about Ambrose. And Ambrose was an early church father. And Ambrose was facing a heresy that was peeking its little head up in the church called Arianism. The idea of Arianism, the controversy and the heresy of Arianism is simply this. Arianism believed that Jesus was created, not always existed. And this became a hot button issue in the church during Ambrose's day. But Ambrose knew he couldn't figure this out on his own. So what he did is he brought together a council, a council of other leaders and theological thinkers. And then he brings in somebody who believes in Arianism and they begin to debate and talk through it and go to the scriptures and work together. Why does Ambrose do all this? And I believe Ambrose was a smart dude. He's a lot smarter than I am. Why did he do this? Very simple. He knew that together they had to work together in order to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, Jesus gives us a new way of thinking. 
The idea is that we are to take God's word and we are to every day allow God through his spirit to shove it into our minds. To make sure that we're not going down the road of heresy. He causes us to think differently than the world around us. And let me tell you something. When you begin to think and and live differently than the world around you, they're going to notice. And when they notice and they come up and ask you why, I'm going to give you really what they're asking you. You want to know what it is? This. Will you tell me about Jesus? There's mission number one. Invite people to Jesus. When they see how you live for him, how you hold these confessions of the faith without hope, with hope and without wavering, and you begin to live your life in conjunction with the confessions of our faith, you begin to live differently in such a way that people begin to ask you about your faith. And it's a great evangelism opportunity for you. But lastly, look what else we do here. Not only do we see that we live a different life, but the last thing is, as a church... We are designed to provoke and encourage one another. This is what we value here at Center Church, what we call biblical or cultivating biblical community. So we coach theological discipleship and we cultivate biblical community. I think verses 24 to 25 come out. This is how we teach each other the second part of our mission statement, how to live out the gospel. Verse 24, he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love And good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, two things happen when we read a verse like that in our American Christianity. Number one, scholars talk about the idea of what we call American individualism. Uh, Joseph Hellerman calls it American individualism in his paper or his book. Uh, Charles Taylor, Sneed, um, Who's the other guy? There's another. Oh, Carl Truman. They all talk about it as expressive individualism. I call it radical individualism. We live in a time of radical individualism here in America. So the idea of community bothers us. And here's why it bothers us. Because we want to do what we want, when we want, how we want, and we want, rarely do we want anybody to tell us we can't do it. Right? When we've created a church like Burger King, I just want it my way. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, the church is actually designed to help you be sanctified. And the church is designed to be God's way, not your way. But we live in a time of radical individualism where this idea of holding and meeting and stirring and encouraging and working together and meeting together. Like it bothers us because it's like, who are you to tell me what to do? Church. Number two, though, number two, what we typically do with our American individualism when we come to the church is we only let the church in to some of our business. We don't really get real with people. We come in and we're like, you know what, I'm only going to give you like these are the areas of my life I'll let you in on. But the rest of that you don't touch. Don't you dare touch my sins that I like. Don't you dare touch my materialism. Don't you dare talk about my finances. Don't you dare talk about human sexuality. You have no business, church, touching those areas. Well, then what happens is our American visuals is we forget that God created the church to help sanctify us to become more like him. In all reality, I think the church is supposed to get into our business. And not as a means, we'll see here in a minute, not as a means of being mean or hating on each other or nitpicking but as a means to stirring up one another towards love and good works. You see, 
The church wants to be in your business because we want you to become more like Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Because when I wrote this, I thought it too. So I share with you that I'm in your, I'm in your same bubble, okay? Sometimes when I hear that, though, I think to myself, how dare the church dominate me? And let me tell you, there's some false religions out there that dominate their church members, right? Think about Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. Like, they tell their people what to do, how to do, and when to do it. But I want you to think differently about the gospel. I think the gospel teaches us to think differently about community, and this is what I mean by that. The church is not designed to dominate. The church is designed to develop. Does that sound different? Our goal as a church is to develop you in your walk with Christ. Our goal as a church is to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ so that through mutual encouragement, we can draw near to God. Through mutual encouragement, we can hold fast the confessions of hope without wavering. Through mutual encouragement, we can teach each other to love and good works. We provoke each other to become more like Jesus. To become more like the one who offered himself once and for all for our sins. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard it before here at this church. He always said the Christian life is a life to set, that Jesus says, bid yourself to come and die. Die to yourself to live for the Savior. And the church is designed to help you with that. As a brother and sisters in Christ walk together. I love what the author says here in verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up. That word stir up is the same word that we get provoke. It's provoking. It's only used one other time in the New Testament in the Greek language. And that's during Paul and Barnabas's almost missionary journey. So there's a time where Paul and Barnabas, they come together. And there is a big, the, the word here is sharp disagreement. There's a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas of whether or not they should take John Mark with them. Because Paul's like, I don't like John Mark. He messed up in the past. And Barnabas is like, you know, Barnabas, the encourager, right? He's like, no, John Mark, he's going he's gonna to stick with us this time. And what ended up happening is they began to argue. Have you ever been in one of those arguments where, like, it elevates? Like, one person goes up a level, and the other person, if you start to look at your spouse, don't do it. All right? Kyle's not here. He's preaching in Clifton. He can't counsel you today, okay? So keep that. Just wait till he comes back on Monday. But like, you know how that's how typically like arguments start, right? Especially in marriages. It's like something little and then, and then one person takes it. Well, oh, I can't believe you would get onto me for this. Let me get onto you for that. Like, oh, I can't believe you're bringing that up. And by the time the argument has reached this peak, you're not even sure what you started to argue about in the first place. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me all spiritual. You know what you're ta- I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, the ham, it's the ham situation. You see, that's, that's what happened between Paul and Barnabas. They got so heated that Paul and Barnabas split ways. And the author of Hebrews takes that same Greek word and he says, let's not put it in the negative, let's actually put it in the positive. That we are to be so intensely involved within one another's lives that we are provoking and stirring up with intensity our love and good works for Jesus. I like to think of the church as a football huddle. Football huddle where we come together we call the plays together and we get all on the same page and then we say hut and we go out and we live our lives for Jesus. But we come back to the huddle the next play and we do it again. We come together and we're like, let's encourage this other. We got to score this touchdown. Let's go. Let's go. That's the way the church is designed to be. So it's not a, it's not a means of domination. It's a means of development. And we should intensely provoke each other. Look at the two things we provoke each other to do. Number one, to love. So if you're taking notes, we provoke each other Number one, to love. 
our task as a church is to make you fall more in love with Jesus. God's community is to make each other fall more in love with God. It is to show us how much God has really done for us through Christ. How he's empowered us through his spirit. And it's our, as our task as a church to motivate and encourage each other to love God more fully each time we gather. And out of our love for God, looks what it does next. Our love for God means that we begin to encourage and provoke each other to good works. In other words... As we continue to grow in our love for God, we begin to continue to grow in doing good works for God. Now, these are not just good works that we decide what's good and what's bad. I don't think that's the way that God's word actually works. I'm in the belief that when we look at God's moral law, so when we think moral law, think of the, the summary of the Ten Commandments, or think of, uh, of, of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that God's moral law, when we look at those commandments, is a reflection of his character. So when God says you shall not murder, the reason you shall not murder is because God's character is I am the God of life and I value and sanctify life. So therefore you should too. So the law, the moral law is a reflection of God's character. So if you want to be more like God, if you want to be more like God, what should you do? Sorry, I had a ringing in my ears. Sometimes the Marine Corps just, it just, it goes off. So if you saw my do that, I apologize. Um, Where was I? Okay, yeah. So what do we want to do if we want to be more like God? We follow his laws. We follow his laws to be more like him. And so therefore, if you want to be like Jesus, you obey God. If you want to mimic the character of Christ, you obey God in the moral law. And so therefore, it is God's word. It is the objective standard of scripture that tells us what is good works and what is not good works. So let me give you a case in point of what I mean by this. Recently, I wrote an article Uh, over the uh, Defense of Marriage Act. And the the point of my article was very simply this. The point of my article was that uh, no matter what legislation or how people vote on the Defense of Marriage Act, it doesn't actually change the definition of marriage. Because God's definition of marriage is already set in stone. One man, one woman for life. There you go. And so God's not sitting up in heaven going, oh, they just passed a bill that says now we have to defend all these types of marriages. We better change our definition, Godhead. He doesn't do that. That's not God's economy. Now, of course, he says, if you want to live that way, be like the prodigal son, take off. There's just destruction. We all know this. There's just destruction in the wake of sin. And so I wrote this article saying that God's economy never changes the definition of marriage. And I had a guy write me and he said, I disagree with you. He said, why don't you allow your God and yourself not to worry about anybody else's business? I said, well, because I love you too much. You see, I love my neighbor the way that God tells me to love my neighbor. And I love my neighbor enough to tell them the truth, but I do it in love. And so I teach, I taught him, I said, actually, my good works, my defense of God is not based off of what I, what I'm so, so calling saying, this is my beliefs. And so I said, actually, what I'm doing is I'm actually saying, this is what God says. And I believe this is the best way that I can love my neighbor. Because I, again, go back to the creation account. And I believe that marriage is the building block of society. So good marriages help contribute to a decent society. And you know, why I keep saying decent society Because we're all filled with sin. And so there's never going to be like a perfectly good society until when? Until Jesus comes back and then it's all going to be set right. And so I love my neighbor and do good works the way that God tells me to love my neighbor and do good works. 
Verse 25, let's finish here with not only are we to provoke each other towards these, but we also to encourage one another. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Now, I would, I would apologize to a church. I actually preached this one time, and I preached this as a means to uh, make people come to church. That is, yeah. I made a mistake. I repented. I've studied it better, and I don't think that's what the text is teaching. This is not an attendance roster message, okay? Although we are taking it. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The idea here is the reason why they're neglecting to meet together is because the, the, the Hebrews people are actually being persecuted for their faith. The audience here is being persecuted for their faith. So every time that they would go to church, they were actually painting themselves as Christians to be further persecuted. So people are like, well, I'm not going to go to church. Because if I go to church and I meet and gather with other brothers and sisters in Christ, then other people out there are going to know that I'm a Christian. I'm going to get persecuted even more. See, the idea here is not, this is not about church attendance. The idea is the second part of the verse. Look what it says. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word day there is capitalized because it's actually designed to take us and point us back to verse 13. In verse 13, we saw that after Jesus sits down at the hand of God, what is he doing? He is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's the day. The day is we're waiting for Jesus' return. So the idea here is that we're not to neglect to meet together because what we're supposed to do is as we go through the difficulties of life, we encourage each other to persevere. Now, granted, we don't feel the same persecution that they felt here yet. It might be coming. But when it happens, you need the church to help you persevere, to encourage you, to help you understand that this season is only a short season in comparison to all eternity to come when Jesus returns. Let me take that and let me apply it more to our context. This is what I believe by that. Listen, some of you in this room, you're going through some difficult things in life. And some of you in this room, you're going through such difficult things that you're trying to go through it alone as a Christian believer. But I want you to know that the church is designed to help you through your crisis. It is designed to help you understand that when you're going through a difficulty like grief or death or health issues or financial issues or losing a job or a wayward child, that when you're dealing with those issues, the idea is that the church comes alongside you and says, I'm going to encourage you during this time. I'm going to lock arms with you during this time. And we're going to continue to persevere through this on our faith in Jesus until he returns. Let's put everything into its proper perspective, even though it doesn't lessen the suffering and the pain. That's what he's talking about here. So the idea then should be that we should want to meet regularly together. Because how many times do you go through life and everything's on the, on the hilltops? Yeah, saw some rolling of the eyes there. Sometimes it feels like we're more in the valleys than the hilltops, right? But how do you get out of those valleys? You meet with God's people. You share what's going on in your life. And the church comes alongside you to help you work through whatever it is that you're dealing with. We're a community of believers that build upon the gospel and encourage each other to live out the gospel in our lives. That's why our mission statement exists the way it does. Now, final point. We need, at Center Church, we need to be eager to maintain unity. We need to be eager to maintain unity. I'm going to tell you again, relationships are messy, right? Relationships are messy and there's no difference in the church. The difference between the church and the world is that we actually know how to deal with them. We know how to work through the messiness. 
And we work through it through the understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel is the gospel of reconciliation and therefore we know how to reconcile with one another. Here's the reality. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says that you should be eager to maintain the unity of faith. That word eager to maintain means it's a constant struggle. It's something that we should work towards every day. Here's what I believe. If we are not being eager to maintain unity at Center Church, we will naturally fall towards disunity. It happens all the time. We will naturally begin to move towards disunity as a church if we don't maintain the unity of faith together in our meetings together. So here's what I mean by that. My kids like to tell a funny joke at the dinner table. Our kids like to tell a funny joke at the dinner table. My wife hates it when I call them my kids. Sorry, honey. She's going to have to watch it later. Can we just edit that part out? Okay. They say, they like to say this joke at the dinner table. They go, there's the three hardest words to say are these. I'm sorry. I was wrong. And Worcestershire sauce. (laughs) But the reality is, brothers and sisters, we're going to mess up and sin against each other as a church. You're going to make a mistake. I'm going to make a mistake. We're going to say something we shouldn't have said. We're going to sin when we shouldn't have sinned. We're going to be sinned against. We're going to move too quickly and not communicate clear enough. And we're going to offend each other. The difference between us and the world is that the gospel compels us to go and make it right. In other words, we should hear these words at Center Church all the time. I'm sorry. I wronged you. Forgive me. I love you. You're forgiven. Because that's the gospel. The gospel doesn't mean our relationships are going to be perfect, but it does mean that we have a method in which we work through our relationships. Now, let me just quickly add one final comment to that, and that's this. Just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean there's not consequences for sin. Okay? And I want to say that just really quickly here because I believe that it's, especially in some instances of abuse, you can say, I forgive the person, but yet there's going to be consequences for the abuse. So forgiveness doesn't mean that it's all, we're all back to square one. There's always consequences for sin, but forgiveness means is that I'm not going to hold this against you because Jesus has covered it by his blood, and I'm going to cover it too. But the idea here is that you and I, we need to be a people that work and strive towards unity. In other words, we need to be the best at reconciling relationships. Going to somebody and said, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I do this all the time. I did it this morning. One of our worship leaders got up here and came up to talk to me and said, um. And I said, you shouldn't start a sentence with um. And I was like, oh, Jeremy, why did you say that? (laughs) You know, I remember that cup. Like, I'm always correcting your grammar. Sometimes I do it out loud. I meant to do it in my head. So afterwards, I went up to him like, hey, I'm sorry if I offended you. (laughs) Like, I I was rude. I shouldn't have been that rude. He's like, no, I didn't take it at all. I was like, that's good because... I'm sorry if you did. First thing, that, that's how we should be as a church. That's how we should operate as a church to maintain a unity. Because we meet together. We work together. We love one another. We, we work in, in a, an environment to where we continue to help develop each other in the faith. And we do that through the lens of the gospel. There's three ways we do it at Center Church. We gather together here. We meet at missional communities throughout the week on Wednesdays. We meet together in smaller groups and host homes around Brenham. 
We build relationships and we pour into each other through the word. And then we do it through our men's and women's equip. Men's equip meets Tuesday mornings right here at 6 a.m. Where we just right now the men are going through the Bible and we're just we're just encouraging each other with the word. And God is just working in so many cool ways and very different in, in all of our men's lives. But then at women equip, all the women meet once a month up here on Thursday evening to go through Jenny Allen's finding your people. How to be build relationships with people within the church. And this is the way that we decide to cultivate biblical community and coach theological disciples. This is the way in which we have decided our method in order to meet together, to stir each other up towards love, to good works, to encourage one another during difficult seasons of life until the day draws near. And so I would encourage you today to be a part of those groups. to Commit yourself to the gatherings, to find a missional community. If you don't know where a missional community is, come talk to me. I'll get you plugged into one. Or to join our men's and women's equipped so that we can continue to draw each other closer to God. So that we can continue to help each other hold fast to the confession of faith. And we can continue to stir one another up towards love and good work. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Number one, if you're here this morning. I want you to know that this community is built upon the gospel of Jesus. It is Jesus who brings us together as a family. But number two, some of you in this room, maybe it's time for you to join this church. Maybe it's time for you to become a partner and part of a family member of this church. So that you can begin to walk with us and encourage us and we can encourage you to be developed in your Christian walk with the Lord. But lastly, maybe some of you in this room, you have a strained relationship with somebody else in this room. Maybe you've, you've said something to offend, or maybe they've said something to offend you. So we're going to do something really strange, and I think it's good this morning. As our worship team plays and we sing and stand, if, if that's you, if you have something with somebody in this room that you're wrestling, or that there's some division between you or disunity, I just all you want you to do, if you're a man, go up and give them a shake, shake their hand. Or if you're a lady, go up and give them a hug. And make that a symbol saying, today, this week, I realize that we have some tension between us. And what I want to do is, through this handshake or through this hug, that this week I want us to reconcile it together. I want us to allow the gospel of reconciliation to penetrate into our relationship. Maybe that's somebody saying, I'm sorry. I've wronged you. I've hurt you. And maybe that's somebody else saying, I love you and I forgive you. And I want you to do this because we're going to come to the table here in just a moment after this song in unity. Unity around the communion table. Unity around the gospel that we're going to proclaim to one another as we take the bread and as we drink the grape juice. Lastly, during this time, I want you to examine yourself. As we sing, just examine yourself. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there any place in my heart that I have not surrendered fully to you? Say, help me to give it all up for the one who gave it all up for me. I'm going to pray, and after I close in prayer, I'm going to stand and you move as the Lord leads you. I'm going to stand in the back. So if you're today, you say, Jeremy, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus, or I'm ready to join this church, come back there and I'll take your name down and we'll tell you your next steps. But the rest of you, You move as the Lord leads. Let's stand together as I pray. Father, Lord, I'm thankful for your word, for its integrity and its clarity. 
Help us, Father, to be a place where not only we invite people to Jesus and we call believers to live out the gospel, but we're a place that fosters and values biblical community and coaches theological discipleship. Together, may we not neglect to meet together to help each other through this life, through the power of your spirit, through your word, and through the community that you have given us through the gospel. So, Father, you move now in the lives of these people in only ways that you can. Help them to be brave if they need to be brave. But help them to surrender completely and totally to you in this time of response. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.